thirsty? You've come to the right place to wet your whistle. It's the Liquid Lifestyle with Ryan McGarrian, a full hour of liquid refreshment. Now, here's Ryan. And a very merry late summer Saturday afternoon to you, my thirsty listener. So many of you know now, by the sound of my voice, that it's time for another shift here at the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. And for those, uh, and if you're joining us for the very first time, I am your host and on-air bartender, Ryan McGarrian. And this little show of mine is dedicated to all things liquid and delicious with a special leaning toward what we call potent potables. A fun little phrase I borrowed from Jeopardy, one of my favorite shows, uh, which includes spirits and cocktails, beers and wines, with occasional forays into coffee and tea, along with the very fine folks and joints that serve them up, be them right here in P-Town or uh, parts far, far beyond. And uh, so if you joined us last week, we had a great time waxing nostalgic with our buddy Lucy Brennan, one of Portland's great craft bartending pioneers. And one of the great things about the interview, uh, from my perspective, was the opportunity to drop back and explore the beginnings of the modern P-Town cocktail experience. And our interview with LB uh, now gives me the perfect opportunity to continue that story, the story of the evolution of the craft cocktail scene here in the City of Roses, Hops and Hipsters, with one of the country's most accomplished bartenders and bar owners. And that, of course, is my man, Daniel Shoemaker of the Teardrop Lounge right here in Portland, Portland's Pearl District. Daniel, so good to have the opportunity to chat with you today. Thanks for having me. This is a blast. Dude, I'm stoked to, to, to continue this conversation in the Portland cocktail scene. And, you know, Teardrop has just been such an enormous part of not only the evolution of what's happened here in Portland, but nation and even worldwide. So uh, I'm excited to share that origin story with everybody else. But again, just to kind of reset last week, the lead in, uh, you know, Portland was always in my opinion, you know, growing up here, being a bartender here, kind of on the cutting edge of, of modern cocktails. And, you know, before, you know, 2002, 2003, I guess what we would have called crack, craft crack cocktails, craft cocktails really would have been, uh, you know, just a focus on really fresh ingredients, maybe some herbs. Um, but that was kind of really what, what the focus was. And then, as you know, I mean, more than anybody that, you know, the uh, 21st century and, you know, in the early 2000s really, you know, kicked us into a new age of kind of knowledge, intelligence, uh, desire to be precise, desire to explore. And, um, you know, when you opened Teardrop, that was in 2005, right? Uh, no, 2007, actually. Summer of 2007. Okay, so 2007. So you've been doing this for eight years now. Wow, time flies. So, you know, in my opinion, you know, when you guys opened, you kind of ushered Portland's craft cocktail scene into kind of a new phase. And uh, I'd just love it if you'd share with our guests... Uh, the origin story. I know you come from San Francisco, but I know so many of our listeners, specifically the bartenders, uh, would love to hear that story. Um, yeah, I, I am fascinated. There's a lot of uh, curiosity about history right now. That's, and I think this is perfect timing in the arc of uh, cocktail development. I think during cocktail week, uh, there were at least four people kind of bopping around town. I don't know if you talked to, to Robert Simonson. There was everyone. Was, it, it's funny that there, some are very localized. Some were specific to Portland. Some were West Coast. Some are national. Uh, and this is about the right time. Really, I'd say officially 10 years in uh, to this arc of the uh, to the specific arc of the cocktail development. Um, and it's funny how a short-term memory 
kind of goes hand in hand with with this, especially because the the baton gets passed to the next generation so rapidly in this industry that uh, people tend to forget origin stories. They forget where things came from. In the 90s, I think it's easy to gloss over what happened in the 90s, but while there was a sea change in 2004, 2003, as you're talking about, that, that essentially launched it into the stratosphere with a very rapid pace. But it would have, it couldn't have been anywhere without the foundation that was laid in the in the '90s. And so, when I hear some of these stories, I, you know, I, not to dive off too much into into San Francisco, but I think a lot of that is where I came from. But without knowing, being privy to where it came from, uh, but uh, reading a piece that John Santer did, and I think an Eater, and he's so laid back about how it happened. So John Santer owns a, a prize fighter in Emeryville, but he's been an icon and a fixture in, in the. Uh, in the San Francisco scene for, for quite some time and just one of the best people. He's sort of like my metric for, if you don't like John Santer, you just, you don't like people. Like, you don't like puppies. I don't know what it is, but he's the most likable guy on the planet. And to hear him talk about just him and Dave, Dave Nepov and, and uh, Jeff Hollinger sitting down at um, Enrico's in San Francisco back in 96, you know, along with Marco. And you realize that that's, that's where it was, for these guys, it was taking place early on in a very dynamic way. And that's when it happened here. It happened here uh, in the same capacity in, in, I'd say, 95, 96, 97 uh, with, you know, Marco, who is now in San Francisco, and, and Lucy uh, and, and, and Saucebox. And I was not privy to that myself because I wasn't privy to the fact that it was happening in San Francisco at the time. Um, I was, I attended bar specifically at one spot for 10 years I ran the program. Uh, and that's called Thirsty Bear Brewing Company. No one would have any reason to know what that place is, uh, aside from the fact that it's across from the Museum of Modern Art. It's catty corner from the Yerba Buena Gardens. It, uh, it is the uh, it is the now the oldest standing microbrewery in San Francisco, which is crazy. So it's a good friend of mine. The owner's a great friend of mine. I was thrilled to be a part. It's going on 20 years next year. So it's it's uh, and it's an institution that quietly has been killing it for a long time. And it was a treat for me. Uh, to be able to run that every year, every January, bar, when there's a musical chairs that happens in this industry where bartenders are like, wait, I want your job, why don't you take mine? And they all just kind of move around and shift because they get, you know, on a restless leg syndrome. Uh, and every year these bartenders would come in and say like, wow, you're still here. Be like I created the program that I wanted, nobody looked over my shoulder. Uh, I was thinking, I would say dynamically about cocktails, but not terribly, I was fresh. Not even, not even fresh, I wasn't fresh. I was pasteurized, citrus. Um, <laughs> and uh, somewhat seasonal. Uh, I changed the menu a few times a year, but it was you know purees and muddled fruit occasionally. And we had a bottle of Angostura bitters that never got used, like everybody else. Um, the amount of bartenders that I worked with who came up, uh, either that I hired or that who I worked for over the, my time in San Francisco, were that I didn't realize until after the fact were pivotal in the sea change that took place in San Francisco. Uh, it was, was pretty mind-numbing, um, but one of my one of my best friends. Uh, I, did, I didn't come out to Portland for any other reason than to open a bar, um, very specifically. Uh, I we've been looking in San Francisco, sort of a snapshot of my origin story, I suppose. Uh, we've been looking with my then business partner that I had at Tear Up for the first two years. Uh, we've been looking for a few years, and he came to me and said, "You know, I've got a five-year-old and then four-year-old." Um, his son Cassius was, you know, one of my best friends. I love that kid to death, and that's the reason I moved up here. We were we were really close at that point. Um, he, he said that San Francisco is not a good place to raise a kid. He's living, you know, you can't take him to the park. You can't, I mean, you can't say go play in the park. So we came up here to 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 visit, and I uh, 
you know, honestly, uh, we spent a thanks the weekend after Thanksgiving here, and I love the weather, love the town. It was great, but the selling point for me was uh, Paley's place. I, I uh, that was I realized this is owner operated is the driving force of I think the Portland culinary scene, and if 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 food can be uh, um, established on this level, then then drink can be embraced in that in that fashion as well. And still, again, I was not thinking at all on the on on sort of the, the, the evolution that we were going to take. I wasn't on, on that plane at all. Uh, so we geared up to come up here, and uh, you know, we, it, everyone's cocky enough. The, the, the two things you hear from every bar owner or restaurant owner is it's going to take twice as long, cost twice as much. And you're always cocky enough to think, nah, but that's not going to apply to me because I know what I'm doing. I've seen it happen before. I've sat through P&L meetings. I've been a part of like construction or reconstruction. I know what I'm doing. So we got up here in 2006, and we were supposed to open in October of 2006, and opened up in late July of 2007. So I had some idle time on my hands. Uh, didn't know anybody up here aside from you know my, my the friend that I, friends that I moved up with, uh, and couldn't get a job because you know every step of the way or was six six weeks out. So I was up here with you know 10 months of idle time, more than that, like 12 months. Uh, and so on the way out at San in San Francisco, the last night I went through, um, I went uh, bar hopping with uh, Eric Adkins, who's uh, one of my best friends, and he runs all of Slanted Door um, properties in San Francisco. And Slanted Door is the highest grossing restaurant in all of California, which is mind-numbing considering they knocked out a Cheesecake Factory out of that role. And it's still family-owned and operated. The place just slays every single day. And they still give the best. Their cocktails are on point. They're amazing. Eric's attention to detail and his ability to translate that to a staff writ large is amazing. Uh, but Eric and I worked together for probably five years. Daniel, this has been awesome. Killer first segment, man. we got to jump out real quick for a momentary lapse, and we'll be back for a second segment. Once again, I'm with Daniel Shoemaker of the Teardrop Lounge here in Portland. You're listening to The Liquid Lifestyle on the Radio Northwest Network. And welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. We, man, that first segment, hope you didn't miss that. We've been enjoying an awesome conversation with Daniel Shoemaker, the proprietor, bartender, owner of the uh, Teardrop Lounge here in Portland. And he's just been bringing us up to speed on the origin story of one of America's top craft cocktail bars. And uh, Daniel, you were, uh, you were telling us a little bit about the time uh, that you had, you know, where you had already moved to Portland and you uh, weren't quite open yet, so uh, you found yourself uh, in the last segment talking to a friend of both of ours, a, a world-class bartender in his own right, Eric Adkins. You want to continue on that line of thought? Yeah, great. Um, yeah, the, the last night in San Francisco, uh, Eric and a few of our friends headed out for drinks, and we went to Rye, which was the origin of craft cocktails, as it were, in San Francisco that most people wouldn't recognize. Before the heyday bourbon and branch, before, I mean, the, the natural arc for all cocktails is restaurants, and then it moves into bars. And so those bars that come out of, you know, surge ahead and make it the, the pivotal part of their program was rare at that point. And Rye, one of the owners, Greg Lindstead, was behind the bar that night. It was still 10 bar. Lindgren. Lindgren, Lindgren or? Link, Lindgren. Yes, thank you. Um, I know another Greg Lindstead. Uh, he was behind the bar that night, and he was pouring tastes of like homemade bitters and the shrub he was making, and just 
some weird stuff. And, and Eric tasted it and passed it over to me, and I, I just I scoffed. And I said, what? You're making your own bitters. It doesn't make any sense to me. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. And Greg said, man, anyone who's not you know, on board with this or moving forward is going to be left behind. And I said, "That's you guys are taking this way too seriously. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. And sure enough, fat, you know, f- uh, flash, flash forward two years later, for my first uh, cocktail or uh, Tales of the Cocktail, I saw him across maybe a thousand people, uh, catty corner at Old Absinthe House, and I, he sees me and his eyes light up and he starts walking across the street, like pulling up something on his phone. And I knew exactly what he was pulling up. It was a picture of our bitters and tinctures rail to like rub in my face. And I said, I know, I know, I get it, I get it. But I honestly, I had no idea what these guys were doing. And so I got up here, I landed, uh, I had a lot of idle time, and I started, uh, I started to research. And man, you know, you know it's, a, it's a rabbit hole. It's just a deep rabbit hole. And once you start to understand I think there's a part of it that oh, will always be wrapped up with my, um, with my, uh, let's say, lapsed faith. Uh, is that you know, I was uh, I was headed into the ministry. My father's a minister, so there's a part of that will always be sort of uh, a part of that uh, codex for me. Uh, is that sacrifice, guilt, debt, and so that that, that sense of like guilt for um, everything I do is penance. So much of what I've done is penance because I realized that I got through 75, 80 percent of my career as a bartender, and I didn't know what we were. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. We didn't know what we were doing. We actually didn't, um, it never occurred to us to take this, that we could take the same level of pride that a chef does, something akin to that. that we, could, we could put something in front of people that we were proud of, uh, that we had put thought and attention into. And I've cooked you know, my entire life. I love cooking, but I never thought to apply those principles to, to, uh, to the bar scene. And it's funny because I, I uh, talked with uh, uh, Jimmy Han last week at length uh, you know, for his book, and he, his story is so different because he came from Wisconsin. And what that snapshot is that in Wisconsin, they've just been doing things like they are frozen in time. So they just always have been doing fresh juice. And so it was one of those things he took for granted. So that always spurred him on to, to sort of higher levels and wanted to sort of snatch whatever chefs were able to do out of his entire career. And not for us. I think none for, for very few of us uh, was that the case, that that uh, we just sort of we met people where they thought they wanted to be, uh, or we just took orders and made the drinks that we knew to. And someone occasionally came up with a Jedi mind probe, and we had to make that. Yeah, man, that's uh, it's so cool to hear this backstory. I've known you for quite some time. You know, I think going on like eight years, and I, you know, I'm just sitting here kind of in a rapt attention, hearing the authentic story behind the teardrop lounge. You know, people, if you're listening and you're a fan of cocktails. I bet you're just eating this up right now. But, uh, man, I want to talk about throwing those doors open. And uh, I remember Lucy last week was talking about you just kind of, you put all this time and effort, you're just super engaged with getting it open. Then you open the doors and you kind of wonder, is anybody actually going to show up? And you know what? Without a doubt, they certainly did here. Tell us about the first year and a half, two years. I know that I remember, you know, when I first came in and said hello way back then. And, and when I read about what you guys were going to do, there was more of a focus on sake, but obviously that, that that evolved in, on, a, on a level that I've maybe never seen an evolution in a bar. Do uh, you want to tell us about that first two years here at the Teardrop Lounge? Uh, absolutely. The, uh, the sake element was a part of, uh, once we got up here coming into a control state, you realize you have to serve food with, um, with alcohol. And so unabashedly, I don't, I don't apologize for this, we, we didn't want to have a kitchen. We did not want to have a kitchen. It didn't make sense. We had two bartenders, two bar owners that we're going to work all the shifts and be the, the, the labor. And that was the model that made sense to us. I just wanted to be a bar. Like, we went to Crowbar that first weekend. I was here, and I was like, that makes sense. You got these bar owners and that 10 bar. Um, that's what we wanted to do. Uh, so we, you know, at that point, sake cocktails were still a thing in San Francisco. And so we thought, you know, that's where we were, that's where we started. Uh, and so I hooked up with this guy, Marcus, uh, Marcus Bekeiser, who's the, uh, 
the sake specialist of like the West Coast. And so he really turned me on to sake. We had a big sake menu, a sake list. There were sakes in the cocktails. Uh, we opened up with our opening menu with just sake sangria left, which we had every summer for, for the first few years. But I would say six of the cocktails on our opening menu a month before we opened up, two months before we opened up, were sake cocktails because that was still a driving force. I was still, I mean, we were just changing the menu uh, uh, rapidly in big ways uh, at that point. So the first two years, it's, um, it's not that we had an identity crisis uh, so much as we were evolving out of that. I w- we were still learning. We were figuring out what we were, what we were doing. Uh, and that's sort of been my mantra with Teardot moving forward for all time is that if you're not, the second you're not learning, you're spinning your wheels. You always have a, you're always learning while you're here. Um, because I, I upended everything I thought I knew at, at age 36. When did, you know, I mean, going from that kind of thought process, two bartenders, two owners, sake driven, at what point did you wake up in the morning and go, we have arrived at a very different place? Was it two years in, three years in? Um, honestly, even before we opened up, I, we, we, we'd gotten to a very different place. The menu as we opened up was, was, was very different. Um, and I think it, it, uh, it surprised my, my business partner more than it even did me because it's like watching a kid grow up every day. You see it, and then suddenly he realized, reading New York Times, like, these people are making their own tonic water. What the hell is wrong with, oh, no, we're making our own tonic water, aren't we? And I'm like, yeah, here's version 30. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'd gone down the rabbit hole at that point. Um, and a part of it was, you know, starting at the beginning, you – you have to, the, the biggest rule of thumb as an owner is you have to adapt. You, can't, you don't want to change too quickly what you think is your idea, but you have to let that be somewhat pliable. Um, ego goes, goes into any act of creation, but you have to then very quickly let your ego get out of the way and, and say, what's working, what isn't working, what do people want, what do they not want? And so you know, there's some things, you know, we didn't, uh, we didn't have uh, you know, Jaeger or Red Bull at the beginning, but at some point, you know, you know, people were pissed off that you have egg whites in cocktails. They were actually angry at egg whites in cocktails. They were angry the tonic water was brown. They were angry at a number of things, like visibly angry. And so we had to uh, uh, not be apologetic about it, but you had to adapt and, give and, and recognize that people were there for a certain value. Man, it's just, it's been so much fun watching this bar evolve. It's just, over the years, it's just been, it's been a journey for, I think, you and your staff and guests. And we're really fortunate to have what you've done here in this city. Once again, we're talking to Daniel Shoemaker, proprietor of the Teardrop Lounge, back in a moment. Back to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network in the Rose City, coming to you all over the place. Uh, we are talking with Daniel Shoemaker, proprietor of the Teardrop Lounge, a critical, really a linchpin experience with regards to craft cocktail bars, not only here in Portland, but uh, around the country and worldwide. Uh, you only need Google Teardrop Lounge to see the impact that they've had on, on bar culture, culinary culture, and bartenders around the world. So, you know, Daniel's been doing an awesome job articulating the origin story. And, you know, I just think I'm personally so passionate about origin stories. I know that uh, when I train bartenders, you know, when I talk about each individual cocktails, I know what sucks them in is knowing exactly where that drink's genesis was. And I think, 
you know, the same thing goes for bars and lounges themselves and bartenders. It's just so, to me, that connection, that knowledge just makes the experience that you have at a teardrop or, or having a drink from Daniel so much more rich. So anyway, uh, moving forward, man, Daniel, I just want to talk about what sets the TDL, the teardrop lounge apart. Um, first and foremost, like all craft cocktail bars, uh, you know, you're obviously fully all in it to win it with the fresh ingredients. But, you know, that's something that good craft cocktail bars have been doing for over a decade and, and far longer than that. I want to talk about your absolute fixation and your talent with regards to bitters and tinctures. And, and as you talk about that, what, why don't you just do a, a quick recap for, uh, for my listener here uh, about what is it, what are bitters? Uh, well, bitters are uh, very specifically with a wonderful long storied history uh, are just a complex finishing ingredient that are entirely focused on the back part of the palate that give layers of depth and complexity um, to a cocktail. Uh, it's not that a cocktail is not complete without them. I think a lot of people make that argument. That's certainly not true. People say that the definition of a cocktail is spirit, sugar, water, bitters. That was a definition by like a Cleveland dispatch writer in 1805. So it's not, you know, it's not tied to it. It just, it gives, it, it definitely gives a high degree of complexity uh, to a cocktail. Uh, and my fixation, I suppose, with it came at the beginning uh, very quickly with, we had so many of these ingredients we had no idea we could make. It just didn't, again, it, if it didn't occur to us we could make, we could take that kind of pride with cocktails. You didn't, I didn't know you could make vermouth. I didn't know you could make Amaro. I didn't know, I didn't know what Amaro was when we opened up. So I didn't know all these things that you could make. And so we've had a high degree of, I have a high degree of rationalization with like their, uh, for why we make uh, homemade ingredients. Um, but one of them is this thing, it's this like Aristotelian concept of, of quiddity. And I tend to intellectualize a lot of these things. That's fine. Uh, but um, it's this, thisness and thatness of a thing. Like what makes it, in line with all other alcohol ingredients and then what makes it just this thing is how I, I tend to approach it. And so understanding that I think gave myself is where it always stemmed from. But then the rest of the staff sort of this fire of like, wait, how do we make this? How do we start to sort of build this template for this thing that didn't exist before? Um, when we opened up, we went in the first month from like one homemade bitters to six. And then we very quickly had enough that I needed a step rail for it. And then it became a fixture such that it's a part of a conversation that we have 80 times every Friday, Saturday night um, <clears throat> because it's on display. And that wasn't necessarily in, in, intentional. It was you know, highly functional. Every step that we took, every ingredient that we took was, was functional, part of the program. Um, and uh, have always been sort of very sensitive to making sure that it doesn't look like it's uh, an affect. <clears throat> or an affectation, like the, the, all of our barrels are actually in use. Um, so everything is a part of, uh, of that. So bitters, when we opened up, and the fact that there were, there were three, there were three, and the only reason there were three was because Gaz Regan decided he needed to make you know, orange bitters. Um, and so you had Angostura, Peixos, and, and orange, and that was it. Uh, and so to go from there to the fact that like the meadow can be a sustainable business, the fact that there are hundreds and hundreds of bitters out there now, is is mystifying i tell you what you know he's mentioning the meadow which you can find up on northwest 23rd and i think they have another location over on mississippi but for you craft cocktail enthusiast the meadow like daniel just said it would not have been able to exist 10 years ago because you know people just thought 
bitters were that single bottle of Angostura that you saw on a bar top. Now, there are hundreds, if not thousands of variations, and the meadow is a place you can go and not only purchase these things, but they're really generous. They have them all cracked open. I know I've taken my team from Oven and Shaker there to just like put different bitters on the back of our hands. It's a, it's a heck of a Saturday afternoon if you like your, if you like your mixed drinks. So, uh, you know, I actually, I wanted to kind of dive into just real quick, a little role play here. What does it look like? What is it? So... Make, how do you get the idea for a new bitters? Do you back it up from a cocktail idea? And how long does that take? Uh, generally, bitters are going to take six weeks uh, to three months. Uh, so early on, I had just tiny little mason jars all over my, my uh, breakfast counter. Don't tell the, the health department. But uh, So I would make coffee, and I would just sit there and agitate each one daily. Uh, it takes time, and it's exposure. It's contact with liquor. Um, and... Most of the time, there would be several different ways. There are lots of different ways to approach making them. One is the cuvee method, which I know Jamie Boudreau specializes in. It's the way he likes to make it is that you just, he makes tinctures of everything. And that tincture is just that single note extraction of that flavor component. Uh, and then would blend them all together in a cuvee style. Uh, I've always been a lot more uh, rambunctious. Uh, the, my, one of my secrets is that I, I love to cook at home, but I never, I hate baking because I hate measuring. I hate to measure anything when I cook. Uh, and so, which is very counterintuitive from where the way we approach cocktails, but I, I tend to, I tend to almost work backwards. So I tend to almost have this batch that's organic. I throw things in that really intrigue me. There used to be this shop called Limbo over by Trader Joe's and get all these dry, like wealth of dried herbs and bark. And I would open something up and it would make me think of like Christmas. And so I really wanted to work with this. And so you'd work with it. You discover like, this is, whoa, this needed, you know, two days and everything else needed two weeks. So you had to start to then work backward the next time out. So it was almost like every time it was an experimental batch to see what happened, and then you have to taste through all of these, these hierarchy of flavors and then kind of extrapolate from there and then reverse engineer it. So on the short plan for, for our listener, um, bitters, basically you're, you're going to take a base spirit, usually high proof, and then you're creating essentially just a really concentrated infusion. Is that kind of just a really easy way to think about bitters? Exactly. A hundred percent. So you're just, you're trying to, it's just time agitation. You want to find like, depending on the, how porous the bitter barks are, there'll be different times, but really you just want to lay out templates. And so the way that the best way to do it is either just go with cheesecloth with it, with everything and just kind of put them in like little tea bags and take them out when you get too much of one thing, or to recognize that certain bitters are going to take the whole six weeks so you start with that template you put in like bitter bark or root in with high alcohol uh, and then you add in what you think you know the dried herbs are going to take you know a couple days or a week and dried fruits going to take a couple weeks so knowing some of these basic formulas you kind of know when to stage things out Man, it's uh, if you haven't been down here to the Teardrop Lounge in the Pearl District uh, and you're not doing anything tonight, I highly recommend making that trip, man. Where it's just if there's one guy in the industry you want to talk bitters with, it's Daniel Shoemaker. So, man, we got so much more to talk about. I want to squeeze in real quick uh, in this segment, just a quick nod to like one of the great things about Teardrop is you 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 uh, unleashed. A lot of talent on this city. There's a lot of great bartenders who've worked through here. Our friend Tommy Cluse, uh, our man Brian Gilbert, and David Cheneau, and Sean Hoard, the great New York bartender who's your partner at the Commissary, has worked through here. Tyler Stevens, a young talent. Who am I missing? Uh, Ricky Gomez, I would say, for sure. Went back to New Orleans. Ricky was out here for just over two years, two and a half years. It was an entire generation of, ah, it was, those, guys were, those guys were outstanding. Uh, just a thing of beauty to watch them work. Yeah, man, it's 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 it must be really gratifying. I know when uh, we had a chat with Jeffrey Morgenthaler several months back, you know how gratifying it is to create something and then to just you know 
add a layer to somebody's profession or their life or their ability. I think it's one of the most gratifying, at least for me, I know one of the most, one of the most gratifying parts of being an entrepreneur in this industry. So I want to actually move us towards your newest venture because it is, I've always told you that I just thought it was so important for the next kind of arc as you use that term. I love that term uh, in our industry is to make it easy, make it a lot easier for the average bar to take their foundational game up to the next level. And that's what you're doing at the commissary. Isn't that kind of what you're doing at the commissary? 100%, yeah. I think uh, a lot of people assume that we uh, we open the commissary to for to cater to craft cocktail bars. And it's not, it's the exact opposite, uh, in fact. And a part of it is, well, I went, I jumped from that the generation of, uh, of Dave Cheneau and, and, and Ricky Gomez and, and Brian Gilbert, is finding you know that talent and giving them a form which they can play to the next generation I trained from from scratch. Man, it's amazing how fast time is flying today. We're coming to the end of our third segment. Uh, we're going to jump out real quick. Real quick, once again, you are listening to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. Back at you in a moment. Welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. We have such a cool, we've had such a cool opportunity today to chat with Daniel Shoemaker, the uh, proprietor, head bartender here at the Teardrop Lounge. Man, he has contributed greatly to not only the Portland, you know, cocktail environment, scene, experience, whatever you want to call it, but but, but to the much larger story of cocktails in the modern era. And uh, we've, gosh, we've talked about the origin of Teardrop Lounge here in Portland, some of the things that set it apart. And at the end of the last segment, we moved into a conversation about the commissary, which is uh, a partnership between Daniel and his business partner and super talented world-class bartender, Sean Hort. And, uh, you know, they're bringing world-class ingredients, basically the foundation of what any great bar needs to make excellent cocktails and create an excellent cocktail culture to a much broader group of bars. And you were talking about that last segment and talking about how the commissary maybe early on was thought of as maybe just just a product for the craft cocktail bar, but it's not. Once again, you were saying this was built for everybody else almost. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm saying the, the the current generation I have bartenders each, you know, it was they didn't have they had never attended a bar before, and so that training process is about six months to be able to do what they need to do here, uh, which is exhausting. And the time we got ready to open up uh, the commissary, it was sort of the counter impulse to that, which is everybody should be able to do this. It should be accessible to everybody. It's not, you know, they, the bartenders shouldn't first of all spend time making this, but they also a lot of bartenders don't come up through the kitchen, so they don't make these ingredients, and so it can be daunting from a labor perspective, from a cost perspective. A lot of most of the most of the accounts that we have uh, would say at the beginning, we just can't make this make sense, and so our goal is to make it make sense for them. That it is all it's within everybody's reach, uh, and that fresh is. Fresh is a not only priority, but I mean, we opened up. I, there were two, there were three bars that did fresh uh, daily citrus, and it was oven a shaker and teardrop and white owl of all places, which is amazing. Uh, and I love that. But to, to our goal was to get everybody on fresh daily citrus, but 
um, just to see the value of that, it makes such a huge difference. I know I don't have to sell you on that. It's, uh, uh, it, may, it's, it makes such a difference in a, in a cocktail. So is that as the foundation, now we have 45 ingredients in the portfolio. It's just, and, and that grows all the time, much to the chagrin of the FDA. Uh, but it's, uh, it, we, there's, we have templates. Everything can be built, you know, specifically even for a program. But having, you know, they have to go through, you know, the, the goal of like making tonic water to, to, that can be really exhausting for a program. Having it at your disposal is a lot uh, easier. And so our goal is that sort of like that mid-tier bar that doesn't want to be a fancy cocktail bar, but that wants to make good solid cocktails. That is, I think, the goal for all of us, most people in this industry, is to that rising tide raises all ships. That man. Is, go ahead, please. Uh, I just, man, it's just you, you're, you're speaking the language of my tribe, as Wild Bill Hickok would have once said. And, uh, you know, I guess that's what I always dreamed of, too, was, uh, you know, that one day I would just be able to roll into any, you know, American bar in any city and casually ask for a Sazerac and, and just have some level of confidence that that would be part of the skill set of the general American bartender. So, man, it's, uh, yeah, and, and it's really cool because in the last 10 years, it's moved so quickly towards yeah. that. It's, uh, it's really exciting. So, you know, we all, like you said, you know, you, you supply the fresh juices. What are some of the other products at the commissary that a bar, any bar in the Portland area could have access to through you? Uh, any number of fruit gum syrups, so pineapple gum, raspberry gum, uh, blueberry gum, or a lot of like uh, Oregon uh, uh, berries, certainly uh, at, at peak of season. Uh, but also a wealth of herb syrups, and then into more what we call complex syrups. So any like shrubs, gastriques, so people like a lot of people I think recognize now almost as like drinking vinegars, but have a, a long, rich history to them uh, that um, have more, almost more standalone. Also like ginger syrup, ginger beer, uh, ginger uh, tonic water. Uh, or tonic syrup. So uh, the list goes on and on. And we just, for our, our goal is to just continually add things into our portfolio because there are just so many more ingredients and the bounty of the Northwest and the, just all the, the produce that, that belongs in a cocktail, the expressiveness of it. One thing that I've loved that you guys have done, I mean, one of the, 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 the great trends in the industry right now is draft cocktails, you know, the ability to batch a really high quality drink so people can, can have an old fashioned Moscow meal, whatnot consistently, but also at volume. I've had your draft cocktails over at my man, Sam Purvis's pretty men's general. And those things are right tight and full of might. Is that our uh, draft cocktail, something you're beginning to really see kind of a demand for? Absolutely. That's uh, something that not entirely unexpected, but it has kind of blown up in a, in a bigger way. And I think even from, you know, over at uh, Oba, you know, it's just from there, they're even like on a, on a, just on a scalability level to do margarita and mojitos uh, on the draft system is, is outstanding for them. Man, time has just flown. This has just been, man, I, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. Uh, we have to jump out. We have to step out from behind the bar. Daniel, so awesome chatting all this stuff with you. Um, once again, you've been listening to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. Uh, we've had an awesome conversation with Daniel Shoemaker of the Teardrop Lounge and the Commissary. Uh, this is Ryan McGarren, your on-air bartender, signing out, reminding you to always drink your best. <laughs> <laughs>